Greetings, uh, dearly beloved church. It is so good to be uh, here with you today. It is uh, good to know that uh, some of our church body is worshiping online as well. It, it is just so, so wonderful to be uh, here. Uh, for those that are visiting us for the very first time or uh, second time or third time, if we do not have your information, we'd invite you to go uh, on our website and there is a a guest card that you can sign, um, uh, log your information in, and that way we can uh, reach out to you throughout this week. It is, it is so good to, uh, to be here in the house of the Lord. Uh, I know that you already know this, but I want to say it again. I love you so much. I love you. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. Uh, as I have been uh, preparing uh, this week in, in prayer, um, and as I've known for a few weeks, the direction that I felt that God wanted us to go um, as we sit at the well again in John chapter 4, uh, the Lord brought over and over just memories to my mind for which I'm grateful. I am grateful that you and I can have these difficult conversations that we're having. I am grateful that you are a church that is ready. Uh, you are a church that is open. I'll tell you why. 16 years ago, you had just built this new sanctuary, and you could have just gone on uh, like business as usual. But uh, the pastor at that time and the church board and the leaders said, you know, our community is looking so different than, than the majority of the church. And we want uh, to, to invest into our community. We want to reach out. We, we want our church to begin to look more like the community around us. And you, uh, I, I like to say you took a risk, although my life coach says you didn't take a risk, you just went into the future, uh, but you took a risk on, uh, on two people from Mexican descent, one that is crazy and one that is very normal. And I'll let you decide which one you think is crazy and which one you think is normal. Uh, but you took a risk 16 years ago, and you partnered with the Southwest Oklahoma District to start a new Hispanic church that you were hosting in your, in your congregation. Many of you don't know this, but about a year after Sergio and I came and started uh, the, the Hispanic ministry, uh, you approached us and you wanted to define the relationship. And you said, we don't want you to leave. We don't want you to become your separate church. We don't want you to go out and, 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 to, and to be away from us. You are a part of us. Uh, let us go to the district and let us work it out. And, and you stay and you become a part of, of who we are. And you showed us incredible hospitality. You know, we, we were never like, you know, separate. We were never, you know, like you can't use our, our coffee pot. You can't use our coffee machine. You can't use our sanctuary. From day one, you said, it's, it's here. We love you. And seven months ago, Trinity Church, I tell you, we're ready for these conversations. Because seven months ago, you voted not just for a woman minister, which is, was already a big step into the future, but for, for a brown senior pastor. And so if there is a church that I believe is ready for these conversations, it's Trinity Church of the Nazarene. I pray for many pastors around the globe that are trying to have these conversations where there is great resistance that is felt from the pew. 
But we are a church that I believe is, is ready to continue to sit at the well and to have difficult conversations and engage with the things that are happening around the world. So first of all, I want to say I am grateful to be here in this moment, in this generation for such a time as this because I believe that God is on the move in amazing and incredible ways and we want to be a part of what God is doing. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. The second thing I want to say as we start off this morning is that um, just because we are talking about racial reconciliation does not mean in any way that, that we approve or condone behavior that is sinful, right? We, we're not saying it's okay to destroy property. It's okay to, to abuse uh, in response. It's okay to treat or mistreat police officers that are innocent. We're not saying any of that. Okay, so I just want us to, to separate a little bit the conversation. What we're trying to do, uh, and we're trying to be as faithful as possible, is to address what has been called the original sin of our nation. It was, it was born on segregation. It was born on racism. It was born on those things. And so what we're trying to be faithful to do is to address that, okay? And so last week, uh, as we uh, are trying to hear different perspectives, we heard a story from uh, one of our own, Jacora. Today, as we enter into this conversation again, we're going to hear a very unique perspective from one of our own. Her name is Jan Goley. So please listen to this story. Well, good morning, church. I am sitting here with Jan Goley. Hi, Jan. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for being willing to do this with me, this You're interview. Uh, talk to us about how long you've been a part of Trinity. I'm pretty sure that Chris and I have been here as members approximately 12 years. Okay. Okay. So we're interviewing you very specifically this morning because you have adopted two kids of African-American descent. So I would like for you to tell us about that journey for mm -hmm. you and Chris. Okay. After many years of dealing with infertility, which was hard, Chris and I began the process of international adoption and that went on for a while. Um, and at that point, you know, we were getting older and it was like, we need to do something else. And we didn't really think it was ever going to finish. Um, so we decided to change to domestic adoption. Um, and there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of paperwork. It's unreal. But um, with all the paperwork that has to be filled out, you have to fill out a questionnaire about what race, what age, what sex, actually not sex now because they don't accept that anymore. But essentially it was more along the, what race would you choose or would you consider adopting? Um, and after talking with our parents, because we really need to make sure everybody was on board and I'm praying about it, we said that we were going to leave it open, okay. which was fine for us because I didn't have a problem and Kristen either. Mm -hmm. um, but I've got to tell you, my grandfather was a very prejudiced, very racist man. Mm -hmm. Growing up in New Mexico, it was um, very hard and anybody other than Caucasian he just was not welcoming. Um, however, my mother was the most open, most caring, 
the most generous, God-loving woman you could ever meet. And so I am so grateful that I could follow that example. Mm -hmm. And that was just, you know, and that's why I'm so glad that I can, you know, bring that, kind of put that on the table. Um, And you know, it was kind of neat because both of our families, Chris's family and my family, were just ready to welcome another child into the family. And it didn't matter what race, anything. It was just another child. And you know, adoption is definitely an emotional roller coaster. It's hard. It is not for the faint of heart, let me tell you. (laughs) And we didn't realize that going in, but as you go in, it's like, wow just the ups and the downs about what's happening and you know um but we're so so very thankful for St. Anne Parker and their birth mothers yeah. who chose us yes they chose us <laughs> to be the adoptive parents for their unborn child and mm. they chose adoption over other options mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know out of great love and extreme sacrifice on their part yeah for St. Anne Parker not you know it's just Chris and I will never get over that, how much love. Mm-hmm. And we always mm-hmm. tell Zane and Parker, your birth mother's loved you so much. Yes, yes. So much. Yes, yes. So, Jan, you and Chris have a very unique perspective yes. um, that so many of us don't have on, on what it is to have an interracial family. Um, I know you to be a very methodical, well-planned out (laughs) person. And so I know that you would have tried to foresee every step that was going to be a part of this process. Mm -hmm. But as is with life, I imagine that you have encountered some surprises, some Mm -hmm. difficulties that you didn't foresee. Um, And so I'm curious to hear what some of those have been that you've experienced. as a part of having an interracial family. Um, One of the surprises that we've encountered were the comments and questions that have been asked us. Mm. And you know, you just, and by individuals of all races, okay? Such as, um, are you the grandparents? And Chris and I are always like, (laughs) no, these are our children. (laughs) Or are you babysitting? No. These are our children. We've also been asked other numerous questions, which I'm not going to repeat, but that should never have been said aloud. And we now know, and we try to tell this to the kids, if you don't think it's wise or kind, don't say it. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. you never know how you're going to hurt somebody. Thankfully, we were able to laugh over most of them and walk away. But you also have to think about how old are the kids who are hearing those questions? Mm-hmm. Thankfully, they were younger. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten any lately, thankfully, because I'm, a, you know, I might be a little bit more blunt now. Mm-hmm. But we've also noticed a lack of positive examples um, in TV shows who look like mm-hmm. St. Anne Parker. Okay. Until Doc McStuffins came around, you know, um, there really weren't a whole lot. And so, um, even now, there's more, but they still don't represent all the races very much. And that's kind of one thing that we really noticed. 
And one thing that, you know, I know Jacora talked about this last week um, with her siblings. Um, when Parker was, we think about three, I can't remember. She was the temper tantrum stage. <laughs> and we were at Home Depot in Coles. Yes, Parker, <laughs> my sweet Parker. And Chris had to carry her and she was kicking and screaming at the top of her lungs and he had to carry her out of the stores. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, we were so concerned because like, oh my gosh, somebody's going to stop him mm -hmm. because here's an obviously Caucasian man mm -hmm. carrying a very upset mm -hmm. little African American girl out of the mm -hmm. store. You know, thankfully it never happened, mm -hmm. but the possibility was always there. Mm -hmm. And now I always, whenever we go anywhere, I always take pictures of the kids before we go, mm -hmm. just to make sure that if they ever get separated from us somehow, yeah. that I know, you know, sometimes you explain, oh, this, this, and they're like, no, that can't be true. And it is, sure. you know, so. Sure. sure. Okay, so now talk to us about some of the blessings that you've encountered because you have an interracial family. We have definitely been blessed. And you know, we've heard numerous times, oh, what a blessing you are for adopting your children. No. <laughs> we are the ones who have been blessed beyond measure. We are the ones. Sure. And in fact, our whole family, because you know, I was kind of asking my family last night, hey, gave me some ideas, help me think about this. And they were like, oh my goodness, you don't realize mm -hmm. what a blessing these kids have been to us. And you know, our families have supported us wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And I'm so mm -hmm. thankful for that. Mm -hmm. They love the kids. I mean, I just think about the minute we brought them home from the hospital, how they were wanting to gather around. I want, you know, holding them. And really, we don't see them as being from of another race. Mm -hmm. No, they are our children who are loved and cherished because they're children of God. Of course. And so, you know, really, I just... Yes, they are, you know, African-American, biracial, but you know what? They're children of God. Of course. And, you know, and I know Chris mentioned last night, because we've had so many people strike up conversations with us mm. because of our family dynamics mm. that mo probably would not have ever said anything to us before. Sure. And they've been, we've had some really good conversations, and it's been kind of neat. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's another blessing. And also, um, some of our families mentioned that it has expanded their ability to assess their own racism mm -hmm. and bring it to the forefront of their mind and move beyond that. Because, you know, really having a child in the family makes it that much more personal. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, and it really does. And, it you know, you just have to think about that. And... And our, you know, our family dynamics have just been such a blessing because we are more open to learning, mm -hmm. not just about black history, but those who are around us, mm -hmm. you know, and it, we're learning about the black history and appreciating our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers more, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. matter their race. Mm -hmm. So that has really opened our eyes and made us see more, which is so neat. Sure, sure. Okay, last question. What do you wish your church knew about race relations that you have learned because of this journey you've been on? Well, 
we need to make sure that we listen mm -hmm. to each other and not dismiss what is being said about racism, about prejudice, about what is going on in our world. Because even if we're not seeing it, it's there. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. really there, even though I wish that it wasn't. Sure. I wish that it wasn't for my children mm -hmm. who haven't encountered a whole lot of it yet but they might, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's impossible for us to empathize because we're not African-American. Mm -hmm. We're not any of the other races, but we can still sympathize mm -hmm. and we can listen and we can change how we feel mm -hmm. and how we react mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. towards it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have to really be conscious about that, yes. about what, even though we may not our outward, you know, what we portray, we may not say anything, but what we think. Mm -hmm. And then we are, we all need to remember that we are all created in God's image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of us mm -hmm. are created in God's image. We may all look different, but inside we are all the same. Mm -hmm. Created for Him. Thank you so much. Thank you for your transparency and for being vulnerable with us. Thank you. We we love you. We love Zane and Parker so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your transparency and for being vulnerable with us. Thank you. We we love you. We love Zane and Parker so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I know uh, Jan and Chris are watching online, and I know that they won't be able to hear the applause uh, on the live stream, but may they know that they are loved um, in this church family. So we're going to jump in again uh, to John chapter 4. Uh, so this is actually part two of a sermon that we started last Sunday. So if you were not here or if you were not watching, uh, please go back and um, look, look at last week's service if you want the full context of, of the conversation. Uh, but we, we talked about how Jesus, in approaching a, a person, in interacting with a person of a different, a dif different ethnicity than his, uh, approached it very intentionally and very humbly. Uh, which, which this teaches us how to approach anyone that is different from us, right? Uh, so we're going to jump right into verse uh, 9. Uh, we see in this verse that the approach that Jesus took has helped to open a door in the heart of this Samaritan woman to ask a very important question to the Savior of the universe. So verse 9 tells us that the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, you, you're a Jew, how, how is it that you are asking a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews and, uh, do not share things in common with Samaritans. I hope you hear what's happening in this conversation. Jesus, who was intentional and humble in approaching her, amazed her. She realized early into that interaction that there was something very different in this Jewish man. And that difference allows her then to ask the question, how is it? Why is it 
How is it that you, are, are, who are a Jew, are, are even talking to me with respect? How is it that you are not grossed out like the rest of the Jewish people that don't even walk through Samaria? How is it that you are okay in sharing a cup with me when the rest of your kind, so to speak, Jesus, they don't, they don't act in that way? How is it that you are allowing me to be a host and you are the guest here? How are you doing that? How is it possible the actions and the words of Jesus left this woman perplexed to ask the question, who are you? Or in other words, what's in you? What's in you? What's different about you? Why do you have something in you that other people do not have? What's in you? Do you get what's happening here? The actions of Jesus allowed this woman to ask, what is in you? Why are you different? That is what the the people around us in this conversation should be asking of the church. What is in them? Why are they different? Why do they not respond like the rest of the world? Why do they not respond with hatred and with fear? Why are they responding with love and with grace and with humility? What is in you? Well, I'll tell you right away what's in you. It's in you, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's in you. And it makes all of the difference in the world, not just in this conversation, in every conversation, right? Our approach, the way that we act in the world, the way that we interact, it should beckon the question, what is in you? Why are you acting in ways that are so foreign to the way of the world? And now Jesus gets to respond as she's asked the question, what's in you? His intentionality, his humble actions, his love allowed then to, for Jesus to point to the gift. He responds in verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, if only you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that, so that I am never thirsty, and so that I don't have to keep coming here to draw from this water that does not fully satisfy. Jesus responded to her by saying, if you knew the gift of God and who is asking and who, and who it is that's speaking to you. She was amazed that Jesus was being nice to her because she was a Samaritan woman. And so she was, she was happy to settle for just a little bit of, of racial reconciliation, so to speak. But what Jesus is saying here is, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't even seen anything yet. Treating others with love and with respect and with kindness and with humility, that's simply a byproduct. That's simply a fruit of the gift that is already in us. That is what we do because of who we are. But what Jesus was actually doing was offering her more than just a bit of racial reconciliation. He was inviting her into reconciliation with God Almighty. 
He was inviting her to take a drink from the supernatural well that never disappoints. The only one that can quench the thirst of all of humanity. And Jesus is saying to her, do you want to know what, it's in, what is in me? Let me just tell you, this gift is the same gift that can be for you. It can be for you too. So Jesus' Jesus's actions allow him to point back to his Father and to the gift of the Holy Spirit and to say, this is for you too. Now, it's so interesting in this passage that that allows then for them to have a really uncomfortable conversation about race and about religion and about some of the things uh, that, that were different among them. But I'm going to jump down to verse 25. This woman is a bit uncomfortable now with the way that the conversation has turned. And, and she says something that is all too interesting. She responds with hope for the future coming kingdom of God, but she responds with hopelessness for the present. She says to him, okay, okay, I know that Messiah is coming. I know that, that Messiah called Christ is coming. One day he's coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything. He'll explain everything to, him, to us. I know, I know that one day, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I know that one day in heaven, there will be people from every language group, from every tongue, that will bend their knee and that will proclaim together in unity, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God, worthy, worthy, worthy. But for right now, we just, we just have to put up with, with the tensions that are. For now, we just have to continue on and, and just hope for heaven. That's how she responded. As we look at the turmoil in our world, as the church, we are forced to reckon with what has happened in our own, in our own country, in our own systems of oppression. Yet again, we, we see that that this attitude comes out of most of us. This attitude for a hopefulness for the kingdom, but a hopelessness in the present. Maybe we, we admit that, that things are, are just unable to be resolved in the way that they are right now. But I want to propose to you, Trinity Church of the Nazarene, you beloved church, that Jesus had no, had no, has no intent of, of allowing his church to sit idly by and not participate in the work of his kingdom. Otherwise, I would propose that the minute that we are saved, Jesus would have no reason but to snatch us up from this world and take us to heaven. Another one saved. Good. Every time somebody's saved, just snatch him up and take him to heaven. But he has a purpose he has a purpose for us to act as the, as the church, as those that are empowered with the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God in this world. Jesus doesn't allow her to just wish for the future. Look at his response in verse 26. Jesus declared, I, dear woman, the one who am speaking to you, I am he. The kingdom of God is already 
already drawn near, lady, because I am the king of that kingdom, and I am good, and I am righteous, and I am here for you. There is no need for you to sit in wishfulness for a future time when it's already here. If, if we don't believe that the gospel of God truly has power, then I would propose that we don't believe in the gospel of God at all. Because the gospel of God is one of power and of might. I would never envision somebody coming to me and saying, Pastor Gabby, man, my relationships are broken. And for me to say to them, there's just nothing you can do. Just, you know, when Jesus comes again for his church, all things will be made new. I can't imagine somebody coming to me and saying, would you pray for me because I am sick? And for me to say, you know, just, let's just wait, just wait for Jesus to come back for his church. I can't imagine somebody with an addiction coming to me and saying, Pastor Gabby, would you work with me? Would you help me work through this addiction? Would you pray for the power of God to, to, to be inside of me? And for me to say, you know, just have to wait for Jesus to come again for his church. And we wouldn't do that because even though we know that the kingdom of God is not yet fully here, we also know that it is already here and working and alive in the here and in the now. And that is our same response to issues of race, racial reconciliation. Yes, things will be made fully new in, in, in the coming kingdom of God, but in this kingdom, even now, God has things for the church to do. There are things that God wants us to do as the empowered church of Jesus Christ. Let me say this one more time. The answer to the cry of the world continues to be Jesus Christ. He is the answer. He is the antidote. He is the hero. He is the savior. He is the king. He is the hope. And he has given the church through his spirit inside of us the ministry of reconciliation in the world. So do you know what that means? Then we are the hope because his spirit is within us. We as the church, we are the hope. We don't look to Washington brothers and sisters and say, you need to correct this problem. We look at ourselves and we say, how do we, with the power vested in us through the Spirit, correct this problem in the time of God? How do we as the church do that? Because we know that we have the answer. And then we continue in the story. We see this contrasting attitude uh, between Jesus and his disciples. Verse 27. Jesus then, uh, just then his disciples returned. They had been uh, away buying food in the town. And they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why 
are you talking with her? The disciples were shocked. Scripture says that he was talking to a woman. He was, they were shocked that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. He's talked to other women before. He talked to Martha. He talked to Mary. He talked to the woman that had the flow of blood. He talked to Jairus' daughter. He talked to Peter's mother-in-law. They had seen him talk to many women, although that in, in itself was a big step in that culture. But they were surprised that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Truth be known, the disciples were very uncomfortable in Samaria. There were two roads that led to, to Galilee. One was the Samaritan road and one was the Jewish road. And they wanted to stay on the Jewish road. And here Jesus is breaking all kinds of social constructs. And he walks through the Samaritan road and sits at Jacob's well and waits for this lady and is humble and is a, and is a learner and is asking to drink from her cup and is telling her the gift that I have is also for you. And they just, they just don't, they just, it's too much. And they're in shock. As I was reading that, I, I thought of myself in these last few weeks. As, uh, two weeks ago, uh, it was like two in the morning, and I was still glued to the television screen, watching the things that were unfolding in our own city. In shock. Like just, I, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to say. It's just shocking what's happening. Here, you know, a few miles from our homes. And just shock. Just can't believe it. It just seems so impossible. It's highly uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. It's hard. Many of us have found ourselves in a similar shock because of what's going on. Unsure of what to do next, what to, what to say, what not to say. Equally as shocking to me have been, and as I've talked with the, with the staff, uh, this seems to be a consensus. Equally as shocking is our friends on Facebook that, that have shared their own stories of, of times that, that they have encountered racism. And you think, well, I just didn't even know that that was a thing anymore. You know, you seem to have made it. You seem to be like so well off and doing so good. Why, why are you, like, it's just shocking had a conversation with my neighbor who serves in the armed forces and, and to me and to my kids is a hero. And he was telling me, Gabby, just in our own neighborhood, I was jogging trying to get ready for, a, for my deployment. And I, and I was stopped and I was questioned and I was treated poorly because, because I'm black. And, and I just sit in shock. I just don't know what to do with that because it's so different from anything that really I've ever experienced. So I'm pretty sure it's different from anything you've ever experienced. And so we, we sit in shock. But I think it's okay. I think, for, I think it's good. I think the church needs to be in shock a little bit because sometimes shock can help us to understand and to, and to say, oh my goodness, I just did not see this. I've never experienced this. And it leads us to deeper understanding and it leads us to take action where action is needed. But we don't see that the disciples took any action, at least not here. We really won't see that they take action until after they've been invested with the Spirit. And even then, it takes some special visions from God to call them out of what they know and what they understand and experience. They don't take action here. 
they're actually deafeningly silent. They don't even broach the subject with Jesus. They just remain silent. They stay silent on something that greatly mattered to the heart of God. And as I studied that this week, I I grieved the richness that would have come from the mouth of Jesus in that moment if the disciples would just have entertained a difficult conversation. We know them to be the kind that speak when they should be quiet, but here they are quiet when they should speak. Maybe they're saying, if we just ignore it, it will go away. But brothers and sisters, there is no reconciliation without first recognition. Right? There is no reconciliation without first recognition. We can't fix something that we don't understand or care to understand. May the Lord help us. Understand our black sisters and brothers as they are trying to say to us in this moment in our history. And may we use our voices productively and creatively to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. I want to read to you a a piece of of a letter that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote while he was in in a jail cell in Birmingham. And this letter is actually addressed to white Christians of his time. I think the words are, are very appropriate for us here today in 2020. This is what he says. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven on earth, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to ancient evils such as infanticide and the the gladiator contest. But things are different now, he writes. So often, the contemporary church is weak. It's ineffectual. Its voice has an uncertain sound. So often, it is an arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. As I read that this week, I'll just, I'll just say it, I, I, just, I just wept at my, at my computer screen as I read it over and over. 
May that never be said of us, Trinity Church. That we are in our silence, we're just simply supporting the status quo. Or worse yet, that we're using our voice to console the powers that be. And that we're just sanctioning things as they are. This is why I'm so burdened, I believe. One of the reasons, anyway. It's no secret that in the Church of America, we are losing generation after generation of young people that we have invested over and over, over the years in our churches. Kids that grew up in our, in our, in our children's ministry. Youth that grew up in our, in our youth programs. When they, when they go to college or, or when they graduate, we're not keeping them. We're not retaining them in any measurable number. Christian culture experts like George Barna and others are saying that by and large, the reason is because they do not see that the gospel actually has power because of the way that it is lived out, that it doesn't actually have power to make a real impact in society. In other words, they're crying out for more than a religion that that is inward. But what they want to see is that it causes something. And that's very Wesleyan. That's exactly what John Wesley was saying. That to be holy means that we're not just holy on the inside, but that we affect the structures on the outside. I care deeply for our church. I care deeply for the church of the United States. God will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will build his church. And I believe that God is doing something in in Cairo's time right now where he is mobilizing the church in ways that we have not been able to do in the past. God will build his church with us or without us is what I'm saying. God will build his church Have you heard of what God is doing in Africa? Have you heard of what God is doing in Asia? Have you heard that God is on the move everywhere? God does not need the church in the United States if we're not willing to be reformed and transformed and preach the gospel as it is without fear. But I want to be part of what God is doing in the world. And I know every one of us here and watching today want the very same thing. So we say, God, start with us. God, start with us. God, if there is anything in us, God, help us. You know, the the civil rights movement, brothers and sisters, started in the church. It started in a small Baptist church with an unknown Baptist preacher at that time. The civil rights movement started in the church. History would show that we lost our voice as the church in that movement. We lost our opportunity to truly lead the way in matters of racial reconciliation. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, that the harvest is also now. In in verse 35, as we continue in this story, The Samaritan woman has left. She ran off. She left her jar and she went and she said, this is just too good for just me. This is 
this is too grand. And she runs and she tells all of the people in her community, come, come and see somebody that is about justice, somebody that is about love and kindness and equality. Come, come with me. Jesus is still at the well. His disciples are there in silence. And here's this mob of people walking towards these 13 Jewish men. And Jesus, speaking to his church, to his disciples, said to them, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest now. They are ripe for harvest now. I find myself praying these days, Lord, help me know how to use, help us know how to use our voice to bring about racial reconciliation. Help us know when to sit and listen and how to speak up and how to stand in solidarity with those that are hurting. God, give us discomfort at easy answers, at half-truths and superficial relationships. Give us anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that we may wish for justice, freedom, and peace. Bless us, God, with, with enough foolishness to believe that we, your church, can make a difference in our world today today. One day, the skies will erupt with glory, and the Son of Man, our Savior, will come as the victorious King. Jesus won't come until the gospel is preached throughout all of the land, we know, and he won't come until there's unity in his bride. I am no prophet of times. I just have common sense. <laughs> He's closer to his, we're closer to his coming than ever before, right? Every single day we're closer to his coming than before. But we do sense, as I've talked to other ministers and as I have, as I, I have heard just voices all over, across the land and across the world, there is a sense that God, in his timing, is mobilizing some things. The coming of Christ is closer than ever before. And as a church, in unity with the spirit that is in us, we cry and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. But until then, we will carry on your mission we will carry on the mission. We will not miss our moment because it's in us. It's in us. The gift of the Holy Spirit is in us. This is our time in history, church, to be faithful, to faithfully embody the kingdom of God that is of justice, reconciliation, and freedom here on earth. As we dismiss today or as we conclude this sermon, I'm going to ask you to stand with me.
And we're going to pray together the uh, ancient words of a man uh, that we call St. Francis of Assisi. And um, hopefully here in a, in a second, they'll show up on the screen. It's a familiar prayer, perhaps, to some. And um, it's, it's just broken down in a few phrases. But um, as best we can, let us pray it together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Amen.